The Spiritual Scientist podcast is joined today by Dr. Peter Grunewald. And Peter is a medical doctor, uh, a leadership and resilience coach and trainer, an integrated physician with a background in anthroposophical medicine. He works at the Royal London Hospital for Integrated Medicine in Behavioral Sleep Medicine and General Medicine. And he runs workshops on uh, adaptive resilience, um, self-leadership, and psycho psychological safety, especially in organizations. And Peter, I'd just like to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you very much indeed, Mick. <laughs> it's really great to have you here. I, uh, My wife and I discovered one of your books. It must have been, I don't know, maybe 14 years ago or something like that, uh, The Quiet Heart. And that book's had a big influence on my own spiritual practice. So it's a real pleasure to have you, have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be with you. Thanks. Great. Maybe we could start with a little bit of your background in terms of, um, a, you can start wherever you like, but maybe in connection with Rudolf Steiner's work and how you how you came to be involved in uh, working with his thoughts and ideas. Yeah, I'm very happy to share this. I used to go to a boarding school at the Lake of Constance, and one of our options was to do a practicum in a school for children with learning disabilities. And that was, in fact, a Camp Hill place. So my first experience of anthroposophy was really a very practical one. I could see anthroposophy being applied in education in the way how the teachers worked with the children with learning disabilities. And that made a really profound impression on me, the particular relationships which teachers would develop to the children with the children, being able to connect to their inner being on a kind of spiritual level really touched me quite strongly. And although I didn't know much about anthroposophy at the time, I had the instinct that this will be something which will accompany me for kind of the rest of my life. And indeed it did. Oh, wonderful. So were you already a medical doctor at that point, Peter? Or? No, I was I was basically a pupil. I was about 17 years old. That was really at the time of my first moon note. I see. And then so you went on to study uh, medicine. and then... I went on to study medicine. That's right. I went then uh, to Austria to study medicine. I started in Graz. And then after two years, I changed to Vienna. And I started and lived in Vienna for approximately 10 years before I came back to the Lake of Constance, uh, to the very place where I originally met Anthroposophy for the first time and became a school doctor for this organization who works with children with autism and learning disabilities and also started my practice as a general practitioner in Germany. Okay, and then um, then you went on to do anthroposophical medical training. Is that at a later time as well? That was actually in the organization itself because I had a doctor who was an excellent teacher. His name was Hans Müller-Wiedemann, who was really a specialist in his field, a doctor in philosophy and medicine and also an anthroposophic physician. And I trained with him. And later on, I also trained in Wiesneck, which is a psychiatric hospital in Freiburg, near Freiburg, an anthroposophic psychiatric hospital. And that's where I did my training in anthroposophic medicine. But I also joined working groups and medical conferences at the Goetheanum in Dornach. Yeah. 
Okay. Oh, so a very rich, rich background in both uh, traditional medicine and anthroposophical medicine. Yeah, I think the nature of being an anthroposophical doctor is that you have to be also a accredited doctor in your in the field of conventional medicine because anthroposophic medicine considers itself as a complement to conventional scientific medicine rather than an alternative. Oh, that's interesting to hear it phrased that way. Yeah, so with a lot of uh, so-called alternative medicine, it's sort of seen as something very separate from traditional medicine. So how is that different with anthroposophical medicine? Because it is something that's based on spiritual principles. And so it sounds like in Germany uh, and maybe other European countries, it's much more integrated. I'm, I'm in the UK and here it seems like it's not not so well known. But in Germany, is that different? Yes, I think it is a bit different. And that is also in part because in Germany, there are a number of hospitals who are anthroposophically orientated, anthroposophical medical hospitals, which are part of the conventional provision of medical services for the wider public. And basically, people have a choice when they come to these hospitals whether they would be treated more in a conventional way or in a combination of conventional and complementary approaches. And in these hospitals, you would have, of course, fully trained medical doctors, consultants, oncologists, for example, or specialists in other fields of medicine. And they would run teams of nurses and therapists and um um, with all kind of different disciplines and the approach would be integrated. Patients would receive conventional treatment as much as complementary treatment and also additional forms and modalities of treatment such as art therapy, music therapy, urosmy therapy and so on. And I think because there are a number of hospitals there and there are also a larger number of anthroposophical doctors in in general practice, for example, I do think it is just really a kind of um, medicine which is better known in Germany and also in Switzerland and in the Netherlands than it is, for example, in the UK. Okay, right. And so is that what you mean by integrated medicine? Because I heard you say the phrase, but I didn't really twig as to what it meant. But does in, is that what integrated medicine is? It's I think integrated medicine is really about integrating a scientific, uh, in my understanding, and integrating a scientific and also more spiritual and holistic approach towards understanding the human being and treating illness. Just to give you an example, very often in conventional medicine, we have this unfortunate separation between mind and body and leaving conditions which are of a psychological nature more to the psychologist or psychotherapist or counsellor and the medical issues more to the medical doctor. But I do think this is really a misdevelopment in many ways because a human being is, of course, not just, uh, cannot just be treated on a physical level without taking um, emotions, um, life purpose, social situations and other areas into account when we really want to fully understand the condition of the patient and treat them with dignity. And the problem is that we actually have separated out these different areas 
and thereby have lost this capacity to actually look at the human being as a whole in diagnostic and also in practice. And integrated medicine is really about bringing all these elements together. The spiritual dimension of finding life purpose, for example, the emotion regulation, the capacity to change and shift from negative emotions like anxiety, fear, anger to gratitude, appreciation, love, enthusiasm, which we know is a key and core element of resilience development, psychological resilience development, to really understand the emotional situation of our patients, their social background as well. I think all this needs to be taken together with an understanding of the physical condition. And I think in order to be able to do this, it is not bad to have a scientific background as well. Of course, a scientific background often goes hand in hand with a more materialistic understanding of the human being. And there is some work to be done after finishing a university training to kind of correct some of the principles which one has unconsciously taken on board. But I do think, you know, combining a scientific approach with a spiritual and holistic understanding of the human being is what I would understand an integrated approach which anthroposophic medicine takes. It's quite exciting to hear about that because um, the sense that I have, and I'm not a doctor, I don't know a great deal about the whole medical world but it seems like we've reached this kind of um crisis point i mean you could say that at many different times in history but this particular point where um traditional ways of doing med- i don't mean traditional as in um from other cultures i mean w- what's the right word allopathic medicine what's the right way to yeah, say I it? Think allopathic yeah. medicine is yeah, the so- way describing it or Conventional medicine, yes. Okay, conventional. Yeah, let's say conventional medicine has reached a point where there are so many um, illnesses that people are suffering with that can't really be described in a purely physical way. And uh, a recent example, there was an article in the Guardian a few months back talking about some scientific research that had been done on depression, and basically to confirming that it's nothing to do with a chemical imbalance in the brain. And the implications of that really are that the medicines that are being prescribed for depression, while some of them may be helpful to a degree, don't can't, can't really address the problem. And so it, it seems like we've kind of reached this point where you're, the kind of approach you're talking about is deeply necessary. Yeah, I think just looking at the example of depression, I do think there are some indications that antidepressants can be helpful in moderate to severe depression. But I think solely to rely on them has shown to be really not a very good approach. And even the NICE guidelines do consider this as important to understand that medication on its own will be not an appropriate approach to treating conditions like a depression and just also for the simple reason because um, these medications are only addressing a particular aspect of the condition and um, it is really important to not uh, neglect um, human relationships and also are a capacity of the human being to be understood and to undergo maybe also more psychological therapies in order to address this kind of condition. So do you think that uh, conventional medicine is 
gradually waking up to this or is it something that still has a very long way to go? I think it does have a long way to go, but I think in Germany, certain elements are already more perhaps integrated just to think of psychoimmunology, for example, where one looks at the relationship between mind, brain function and um, immunity, I think is playing now really perhaps a more important role, even in its practical applications. And if you look at psycho-oncology very specifically, maybe there is a kind of understanding dawning right now that it is not only good for cancer patients to have psychological interventions, like, for example, group therapy, in order to make them feel better about their life, which is, of course, very, very challenged by diagnosis and treatment, and also perhaps by um, a possible reduced life expectancy, but that actually these very therapies may contribute towards enhancing the capacity to deal with these illnesses more effectively and actually contribute towards some healing taking place under these circumstances, just through the psychological interventions, which can be, for example, of the nature of um, talking therapies, but also could be of the nature of art therapy or urosmi therapy and so on. And I think there is a, a growing understanding in some doctors that by approaching a physical condition, for example, such as cancer, not only on a physical level, but also on an emotional level, on a psychological level, on, you know, a spirit level. And with that, I mean, understanding life purpose and understanding also what kind of developmental potential lies in going through an illness and struggling with the symptoms and trying to overcome them. I think there is perhaps a widening there in some doctors, but also there are probably quite a lot of physicians who are not particularly interested in this particular area. But hopefully, I think we will see increasingly a move towards a more holistic and integrated approach again. And I think in the end, this is also in part very much influenced by what patients themselves are expecting from their doctor and prepared to invest in terms of taking on, for example, personal development and making really changes to their life and their lifestyle. That's really good to hear that. I had a doctor once who said he thought that we should put antidepressants into the water supply. <laughs> so right. I think uh, it's, I don't know if he was joking or not, but it's it's nice to hear that there are yeah, lot, lots of doctors out there who are, you know, taking this um, more integrated integrated approach. Um, this this leads me to a different question. Where what I noticed about your work in in reading your books, and I actually have one of your more recent ones as well. And in a moment, we'll come on to talking about your current current work with self leadership and um, adaptive resilience as well. But I just wanted to ask a couple of questions about this this book that you've written, which is called Mastering Life. And what I noticed about it was I've I've always sort of danced in between these different sort of spiritual movements in a way. I mean, I'm very much um my spirituality is very much grounded in Rudolf Steiner's work of anthroposophy, but also um occasionally read something or get an interest in in something you know, a bit out of left field. And 
One person that I've followed a little bit is uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he does a lot of work with um, large groups and they do meditative work and they've experienced, many people have experienced quite extraordinary healings. And I did use a couple of his meditations when I was going through a very difficult time in terms of uh, visualization and, you know, um, different ways of sort of working with your own personality and your own habits and that kind of thing Uh, and goal setting as well. And one of the questions I have is around this, and I think you addressed it really well in your book where you talked about harmonic, having harmonic goals. So having aims and goals in life that are not just me trying to get what I want, like whether, you know, like lots of us, we we need or want more money or we need, we want to be able to do more things in life and have more freedom. So we want more money and we want, uh, you know, more better living conditions and more opportunities. So all that kind of thing. And your concept of harmonic goals um, made a lot of sense to me because you're sort of saying, well, yes, it's it's good to have your own aims and your own goals, but don't forget to include, you know, why you want them and how they're going to benefit you, also your family, also all the people you come into contact with and maybe the, the earth itself or the people around you and your spiritual life. And um, I just wanted to, to ask you where where this connection came from or, you know, what are your thoughts about that? the the Jodas Dr. Jodas spends a way of doing things and how that differs from your this concept of harmonic goals. I thought it was really a brilliant little phrase. So yeah. So I cannot say too much about Joe Dispenza's approach, but I do know that he uses a kind of breathing meditation to which I have in part subscribed as well. And I will talk about this a little bit later, but just to pick up on this issue about developing our goals. I think it's really quite an art to find a good balance between meeting the needs of our environment and responding to the demands which are put towards us and going with the flow and also responding in a way which is really in harmony uh, with the needs of our surrounding and also our capacity to set goals. And very often you'll find that some people have developed the one quality particularly strongly and the others have developed the other quality particularly strongly. There's sometimes people tell me I'm always going with the flow and I never set my goals because I know precisely that when I set my goals, it's not likely that I'm going to achieve them. And also, I really do not enjoy this particular process. And there are other people who are planning ahead, you know, decades before they're achieving their goals and holding on to them and fighting for them and going through this process of really determining what they would like to achieve in many ways. And of course, our motivations for achieving something in life can be on very different levels. First of all, there are very basic instincts like hunger and thirst and sexuality and safety and feeling accommodated and protected against, you know, nature events. I mean, we know now that many people, of course, in this world do not actually have these kind of essential uh, needs being met. Also, the need for being loved, for example, and appreciated. And then there are other levels in our human existence, which are really about um serving, uh, relating to our surrounding in a loving and perhaps also kind way, but also becoming creative in terms of 
not only creating perhaps technology or art, but also social conditions which are conducive for the spiritual development of human beings, personal development of human beings. And I think that's really very important for me because I can see that um, in my understanding, one of the purposes in life for the human being is to actually progress over time. And that starts really with our first breath, which we take until our last breath, which we'll have to take then as well, that we are actually slowly going through this process of developing a proper balance between uh, basically the element of love and the element of autonomy or self-determination. And I think these are driving forces in human evolution. You can see through our childhood development that there are really aspects of the child's development which are very much about opening themselves in awe to the surrounding and deeply imitating with love and deep curiosity what they're perceiving in their surrounding, but also in their capacity to say no, for example, during the terrible terrible twos, and also, for example, when they reach the age of nine, when they cross the Rubicon and actually really start to doubt uh, whether they really belong to this family or whether they may have been mixed up during the time of birth, for example. And then the entrance into puberty, where a new capacity of rebellion can actually, in some children, uh, arise and then, you know, coming of age, all these are basically gradual milestones towards developing autonomy and self-determination. And this capacity, which can then on its highest level, really end up in our ability to freely determine our life circumstances is a kind of continuous process which goes to different levels of skill building. But the other stream is that where we're becoming better and better in listening, better and better in perceiving nature in a loving way, better and better merging with our surrounding, with the other human being, with the social context in which we live. And these kind of qualities, they need to be in a balance. And I think it is really very important to facilitate this through education because um, we are inclined to get a little bit lazy and just really rely on those qualities, particularly which have been maybe given to us as a kind of gift originally. But I don't think one should rest there. It is really important to develop these two qualities. And I think from this point of view, I would think uh, the three drivers of human development are freedom, and love and mastery, the capacity to really become good in what we do. And we have a deep desire in all three areas to progress as human beings. And I think that means really that we're taking on responsibility for our goal setting. We need to find ways of how we are setting our goals. Of course, it's important to have security. Of course, it is important to meet our very basic needs. And it may be nice to have a nice car and perhaps a, you know, comfortable house. I mean, all these are elements which I would really not deny can be very important for many people. 
But beyond this, we need to actually really think about our responsibility for humanity and the earth because we are really at a very decisive point of development. And most people are becoming very aware of it. We have the capacity to destroy the earth through our actions and even humanity through our actions if things go badly wrong. And I think as long as there are sufficient numbers of people who really take responsibility in terms of their goal setting and try to align their goals not just with their own, you know, justified selfishness, but also look and see beyond and include into their selfishness their family, their community, their country, their continent, the whole earth and the whole world. I do think, you know, as long as this is the case, we're not quite lost yet if you understand what I mean. But if human beings would really not do this anymore, I would really be very concerned for the future of this earth. But I'm, on the other hand, really also very um, heartened by the fact that there are now a large number of young people, and also not only young people, who are really waking up to these questions and putting the interest of the earth and the interest of their communities beyond their own interest. And that is really quite remarkable, I find. Yeah, this is something I've always struggled with myself is, okay, I have my own goals and I, I want to achieve them and I want to work towards them. Um, and how does that fit with you know, the rest of the world. And and so, you know, I've had this conversation actually with some, some people in the personal development world, some very sort of well-known people um, and asked them about it. And their, their take on it is if I've, if I'm choosing my, my goals, you know, with my career and with my finances and with, you know, what I want to do with my life and I really go for it with my goals, <clears throat> then what's going to happen is I'm actually going to bring a lot of people along with me. So if you look at very successful entrepreneurial people, they, they take a lot of risks often. They have to, they have to risk a lot to get to where they get. Um, and by doing so, they actually eventually often create a lot of employment. They create jobs, they create new opportunities that did not exist if they hadn't have taken those risks. So I'm always asking myself, where is the sort of limit where is the, where is the, you know, do, should there be a line drawn somewhere of how much I gain for myself or how much the, the entrepreneurs gains for themselves? And at which point I have to say, no, that's enough now. I need to um, be thinking more about everybody else because that this, this concept that these people have is that the more that I do and the more that I acquire, the more I'm actually able to give, the more I'm able to actually bring other people along with me in employment or whatever. So yeah, do you have a take on that for me? I think you described beautifully this balance between self-determination yeah. and love and selflessness, but mm. yeah, I just like your thoughts. Mick, this is a really complicated question, isn't it? How much do you need in order to actually live a happy life? Is it 60 million or is it 100 million? Yeah, yeah, six, yeah 60 million. million. I think it's 60 million. Exactly. Or 1 billion or maybe 10 billion. 
you understand what I mean. I think perhaps that is not the only way at looking at it. It's really also the kind of consciousness process and the activity which is required to be done to develop responsibility in this particular area. And that means we do need to activate our thinking. We need to bring um, our will into our thinking by asking ourselves really complex questions in courageous conversations with ourselves, which explore our goals within ourselves in a kind of contemplative or meditative, however you want to call it, process, really trying to explore what kind of impact our goal, if and when we will achieve it, will have not only for us, for our own life, but for our surrounding, our community, and maybe also for, you know, uh, the spiritual world. And I think to actually integrate these questions into our courageous conversations with ourselves, into our heart thinking, because it's not just a thinking with the brain, it's actually a thinking where the will is engaged and the feeling life is engaged. I think that can actually create a new form of conscience, which is not just integrated, you know, as a kind of mirror element from what lives now in society, but which has to do with really our, you know, own inner source, our own inner spirituality, who we are as a human being deep down, where we actually perhaps put away our genetically influences and the influences which we have endured and also enjoyed, you know, in our environment, in our family, in our social context with our friends, and ask ourselves, who am I? Deep down, who am I in my spiritual existence? And I think when you start these courageous conversations with yourself, and there are very practical ways of doing this, you can teach this and you can learn it. If you start them, you suddenly realize that quite a bit of your own existence, just by nature, is actually built on untruthfulness. And that causes a bit of pain because you're realizing in order to survive, you have to take on a certain level of untruthfulness to living in this kind of society which we're living in. I think this is really the nature. I mean, if you ask a psychologist, every human being lies, I do not know how often, within, you know, an hours of time. It is really part of our makeup, but there is a possibility to access our own inner truth. And this can be done through a conversation with ourselves by exploring certain questions. What do I want to achieve? How do I want to achieve it? What would achieving this, you know, mean for myself, my own life, the life of my loved ones, my community, the society, the earth, earth, the world? What would be the obstacles in achieving these goals? What would be the risks? How do I mitigate the risks? How do I deal with the obstacles? What am I prepared to do about it? And so on. And by asking these questions and not only writing the answers down, but then putting the piece of paper aside and starting a really true inner courageous, and it is a courageous conversation with yourself, you're actually opening up the source of intuition, but also the source of inner spirituality, which we all have. And that allows us to align our own goals with the goals of 
you know, humanity, if you want to actually see it that broad, but you can also see it smaller, your family, your community, your country, the content you're living in. And I think that's quite important, but it can sometimes also bring you in a kind of controversy with, you know, the current uh, common beliefs, because after all, it's a courageous conversation with yourself, which really um, savors, you know, becoming a bit more truthful and also, you know, connecting with the source of love, which we have not only for ourselves, but also for the world around us. That's, uh, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful way to experience it. And it's, you know, it's been quite exciting for me when I first uh, found your book, um, Mastering Life. It was a really exciting moment because it brought together uh, these concepts from the personal development world with the spiritual development that i've been working with for a very long time so it was really quite an exciting moment um a couple of things in there you mentioned so one one concept you brought in that book as well was about you know the ego or the we could say you know the ego just is the greek word for i um so the individuality that we that we are um i think i think you mentioned something about it's not about um egoism or egotism isn't about having too big an ego in a sense or too big a self it's more about including more within that self so including our family and our loved ones our friends our community the earth itself maybe even the cosmos (laughs) within Mm. within that i within that individuality rather than a um the the I or the ego turning in on itself, which would be kind of egotism. So I just wanted to address that because I think you did that beautifully. And maybe if you could just uh, explore a little bit more for us what you mean by heart thinking, because that's a key concept of of Rudolf Steiner's, so that we don't just, well, we have the uh, opportunity and the ability not to just think with our mind or our um living mm-hmm. our pure thinking but actually to think with our hearts and then also this um bringing the will into the thinking maybe you could just explain mm-hmm. that a little further for us mm-hmm. yes unless we are theoretical mathematicians or philosophers of some kind i think our thinking usually is more reflective it is actually stimulated by the sensory perceptions which we see. We're taking certain things in, which actually then cause uh, in us a response of our thinking, which processes the sensory perceptions and creates, you know, the images which we have within ourselves, which we then, you know, store in our memory in an active process. But this is really a thinking which is more determined by what is already created in the world and thereby by the past. Because if we look at objects, their history is that they have been created, but they have fallen out of creation and have ended up as the kind of objects which we're dealing with now. But when we actually use our capacity to not just reflect, but prospect and ask ourselves, how would I like my life to look like in a month's time? Or ask ourselves, and when I will be 80 years old and I look back at my life, what would I like to see in order to say this was a life well lived? Then we actually have to guide our thinking into the future. 
It can't be just reflective. We need to actually really connect with a stream of time which has to do with the future. We often consider time as a linear process which starts in the past and ends up in the future. But we know from physics and also from spiritual science that time is not like that. That in any moment, in any now, there is a stream which comes from the past and a stream which comes from the future. Our future potential already reaches out into the now. And that's really important because when we deal with other human beings, we should really understand their biography if we want to really understand them in depth. But we also need to have a glimpse of their future developmental potential, at least. That's what I would expect other people to see in me as well to some extent, right? And not just to fix me into who I have been in the past, but actually really understand me as a developing human being. And the question is, how can we open up our understanding for what wants to come in the future, what our true potential is, our best future self? And in order to engage in this process, in a thinking fashion, we need to use the very element which creates future within us, which is our will, to guide our thinking. And then our thinking is not any more reflective. It becomes prospective. It becomes active. We're creating one thought out of the other. And we're creating a kind of vision for ourselves, for our future, on a perhaps initially more abstract level. And I'm not really talking about uh, creative visualization. That's a later level to come. Now we're still on the level of abstraction. What would I really like to see? You know, how would I want to conduct myself? What are the human qualities which I would like to still acquire in order to be a better communicator and so on and so forth? And the questions become the source of a quest into anticipating the future now and connecting with it. And I think this process really is a thinking process. It's a willing process, but actually it's in fact also a feeling process because I feel my thoughts and I feel the will activity in my thinking and I feel the meaning these future ideas have for my life and the life of other people. And that allows me to develop love for my ideas. And in the philosophy of freedom, Rudolf Steiner describes this as moral love, which actually helps to transform our abstract ideas into ideals. And ideals are more than ideas. They're already loved. They're already personalized. And then the next step is to use our moral imagination to actually see how we want to incarnate these ideals within our social context, our own life. And I think the problem with most development coaches is that they shortcut this process. They're going into creative visualization before they have even explored the ideas. And that's a real problem. Because on the level of moral imagination, or no, let's say on the level of creative visualization, we are actually not necessarily ethical. We may take on, you know, projecting our own personal desires into the future and not taking into account whether this could be potentially harmful for ourselves or for others. And that's why it's really important to teach people how to do this because it's a very practical and simple process and it can be learned. This kind of courageous combination with yourself, this hard thinking. The hard thinking is a willful thinking. And the feeling thinking, 
all three elements of our consciousness are united in a distinct way in order to allow to anticipate the future potential and to bring it into our consciousness. And that's a path which Rudolf Steiner, I believe, has developed really in an incredibly ingenious way in his book, The Philosophy of Freedom, which is not easy to read, but which is really extraordinary because it is a training of abstract thinking and willful thinking, which allows us to, you know, connect with these elements, which are the creative forces of future development. That answered a lot of questions that I've had uh, in a very succinct and articulate way. So thank you very much. Um, is what you're talking about there as well connected with, uh, because you wrote a book, which I haven't, I haven't read this one, but gold and the philosopher's stone, is that connected with that uh, al- al- alchemy in any way, or is that something completely different that we're talking about there it, it is not completely different you know on a kind of structural level there is a lot of similarity between the process which is described in the philosophy of freedom and an alchemistic process because i do think uh the essence of an alchemistic process is also human consciousness development and human consciousness development is about bringing a kind of harmony and balance into and purification also into the process of thinking or cognition and feeling and will. And this is described in alchemistic terms, for example, in the process of salt, sulfur and mercury. So really understanding and studying alchemistic process gives us also an understanding for psychology. And I think someone who really understood this was Carl Jung, because he was actually also not only a researcher of human consciousness and psychology in his own distinct way, but also someone who understood that alchemistic processes are actually kind of symbolic processes for inner consciousness transformations, transformation process within consciousness. So there is definitely an overlap between the two. And I think, you know, creating gold has a lot to do with this capacity of bringing this harmony into thinking, feeling and willing. But gold is also the core metal, which in alchemy is considered to be connected with the sun. And just like we have a sun in the cosmos, we also have a kind of symbolic sun within ourselves, which is our higher self, our true self, the one which you have described, which has the capacity to extend itself beyond, you know, our own selfish desires and includes more and more and also helps us on our path to develop our own spirituality. And I think, you know, there are many overlaps between alchemy and a spirit psychology of transformation and this is really what I've tried to explore in my book. Right. And just so that people know, uh, people that are watching or listening, I'll have uh, a link to all of your books and also workshops and things like that uh-huh. uh, in the in the description for the show. So people can find you and websites and all that kind of stuff. So um, but I would also yeah. like to say the book um, Gold and the Philosopher's Stone is not very easily accessible as as easily accessible as my other books 
because it's also really based on my training in anthroposophic medicine and really an understanding of the spirit nature of specific substances in nature which are being explored like calcium carbonicum, sulfur, phosphor and so on and following them through our physiology and also how they support our consciousness activity and that may not be for everyone but if there is anyone out there who's got an interest in that then I of course would encourage them to have a look okay sure great well yes i'll leave links to everything uh in the show description Um, maybe now's a good time to ask you about your work at the moment so a lot of what you've talked about in terms of um adaptive resilience and you know create setting our own goals and um your your most recent book is called self-leadership and as i understand it you uh, run workshops that are in, involved that that, uh, that speak to that as well. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about maybe the new book and also the workshops? Yeah, I'm happy to do this. Perhaps just biographically, most of my work, which I've done beside really working in my general practice one-to-one, also in my private practice one-to-one, I used to be also an, an NHS GP for a very long time, which I've ceased to do some years ago but much of my work is really also helping people to develop a more meditative approach and help them to uh, facilitate self-development and I'd like to say a few words about this because although I've done a lot of work in private practice I've also worked for a number of organizations all my life from schools to you know government organizations throughout but what I have really not done is to offer any public workshops very rarely in fact and this is really an impulse which I would like to take up now I want to open what I do up and take it out of my practice and out of my one-to-one work and out of my group coaching sessions which I do for organizations and really make it available for the wider public and this is really something which we will take up with our Mastering Life Impulse. And I've got a colleague there. Her name is Galen Tato. She's a psychologist. And we're working together and we will provide these workshops. Now, there are different elements to it. I'd like to speak about one core element. There are many more core elements, but one core element, which is really often not quite rightly understood. And that is, of course, all emotions which we have in our human existence are essentially very important. Even the one, and particularly the one, which we are born with, like anxiety, fear, anger, frustration, just to name a few. But it's absolutely fascinating when you go a bit deeper into medical research to see that when we're actually fixed on these emotions, when we're anxious all the time, angry all the time, fearful all the time, that the very emotions which help to save our lives because they make us cautious or help us to stand up against injustice become actually sources of illness. They can make us literally ill. Anxiety, as important as it is, when I cross a busy road in London, when a lorry is approaching because it actually saves my life, becomes suddenly something that can kill me over time, which can contribute, you know, towards heart attacks, strokes, um, and many, many other forms. And I think that's really important to understand that we do need, in order to develop our resilience and our general health, the capacity to regulate our emotions, to be anxious when it's justified to be anxious, but not beyond. 
to be able to transform some of these very raw emotions into much more complex feelings. And with complex feelings, I mean gratitude, appreciation, love, care, enthusiasm. And you can see in these complex feelings, you have already some cognitive and motivational elements integrated, which you don't have in anxiety, fear, and anger and frustration. And in my understanding, cultural development is about the capacity of recognizing our raw emotional states and gradually, where appropriate, transforming them into these kind of feelings, which can only be developed in the interaction with other human beings or through self-education. Does this make sense? Now, the fascinating thing is when you actually look at a measure like heart rate variability, which is a reflection of the balance of our autonomic nervous system, it's actually the changing pace of our heart because our heart doesn't beat in same intervals. It constantly, rhythmically speeds up and slows down. Constantly does this, yes? And that's a hallmark of health. We know when heart rate variability disappears that people are at risk of becoming seriously ill. But we also know that our emotions have a very profound impact on heart rate variability. The kind of emotion which I've described before, like anger, fear, frustration, and so on, when they are persisting, sadness, despair, over long periods of time, reduce heart rate variability. And this is the same thing what physiologically happens when we age. So these all emotions make us aging. They make us not only stressed, they make us also literally ill when they are persisting over long periods of time. But the fascinating thing is as soon as you shift from these more negative emotional states to positive feelings, like I've described them before, gratitude, appreciation, that you actually see an enhancement in heart rate variability. You've seen that the autonomic nervous system becomes more rhythmical. Everything in the human body becomes more rhythmical as a result of experiencing these kind of qualities. And one of the groups which has done a lot of work on this was, of course, and is and has been Hartmuth. But there are more of those. Dispenser also has learned from Hartmuth and has taken some of their meditations and integrated them into their work, his work. And I think to some extent I've done this also with one or two of the elements. And I've always been very, very interested in the whole question of heart rate variability and emotion regulation. But emotion regulation is at the core of resilience development, of personal resilience development. This capacity to actually reframe our understanding of a life situation which allows us to shift from negative to positive feelings is really, really very important. And this will be also really an important part of the course which I'm teaching, not teaching, the workshops which we're running together because it is actually a very collaborative process and also very experiential in its nature. And we're teaching or introducing breathing techniques, which are not just breathing techniques, but actually in fact breathing meditations, which allow to enhance heart rate variability, but also transform some of our emotional states, which we're not always fully aware of, into the kind of feelings which are been describing. So from an anthroposophic point of view, you can say you're transforming some of the astral body into spirit self, if you would want to use some of uh, 
Rudolf Steiner's original terminology. And I think this is a really important part of the work, no doubt. But there are many, many other parts to it as well. One part is to develop the capacity to set our own goals. We have spoken about it already. Teaching this process of having a courageous conversation with yourself having this capacity to understand how my goals can become increasingly aligned with my community, with the cosmos, with the spiritual world, and so on. We will teach this very practically. And this course is not just for anthroposophists. This course is for anyone who's really interested to learn how to align their goals, you know, with the community and with the life around them. And then a third dimension is, of course, to develop good communication skills. And Rudolf Steiner points out the importance of developing the capacity of suspending our judgment. Carl Rogers also did a lot of research on this. In human relationships, we're deepening our capacity to not only understand the other human being on a much deeper level, but also to facilitate their capacity to positively develop by really being able to go through a process of active listening. And active listening means to suspend our judgments with unconditional regard, with real interest, with real curiosity, with real love, but not actually mixing our own thoughts into the process, but rather suppressing our own thoughts and being really entirely open for what wants to be perceived in the other human being, in kind of becoming one, walking in their shoes for a little while, even if it's only for a moment. And then we have to step back and process what we have experienced. Then we're back with ourselves. But this kind of communication is really essential. And I think we can have the same communication with the nature with nature, right? With the elementary beings in nature, if you believe in those, right? So actually sitting in nature and observing a plant and basically suspending our judgment and opening our heart for what wants to be expressed within ourselves and letting it reverberate within ourselves and creating a kind of inner after image and reading this after image. That connects us with nature in a really loving way as it connects us with our fellow human beings in a loving way. And I think this can be also practiced. It's really not only of value for creating uh, a kind of, uh, you know, glue between human beings, a kind of coherence between human beings. It's not only important for our personal development, but I think it has also cultural relevance. Uh, this capacity to actually learn to suspend our judgments. And Rudolf Steiner has built a whole approach which he has taken from Goethe, the so-called Goetheanism, on this capacity of preparing ourselves. And once we are prepared to enter into this process of suspending judgment, really developing uh, what we could describe as open-mindedness, open-heartedness, and open-willingness. And these elements are being trained in our course. We're also teaching meditation and not teaching. We're practicing meditation together. And um, yeah, I think that's what anyone would expect um, if um, they would want to join this course. It will be a three-session course over two hours each. And we will bring these meditative elements, uh, the courageous conversation with 
oneself and with the elements of active listening and nature observation as core elements of this course. Sounds wonderful, Peter. And so it's taking place online, is that right? It's yes, going to be- it, will take, it will take place online, yes. Mm-hmm. I just want to pick and up... There will be some materials supplied, like um, recordings, MP3 files, and a workshop manual for self-study. Okay, great. Well, yeah, as I said, we'll have all the links and the, so that people can find it. Um, yeah. Could I just pick up on one point you had there? Because I'm often talking about this uh, way of listening as well being so important. And the way I tend to think of it as well is that it's actually a community building force. When you said you think you ha- it has uh, cultural significance, I think you're exactly right. Um, because what I've noticed is that in practicing this over the years and admittedly failing a lot of the time, um, when you really try to listen to somebody else, what's always happening or what's always trying to happen is that a part of yourself wants to come in and say your opinion, you know, I don't agree with that or, or I do agree with that even. Um, but a part of yourself, your own opinions are always trying to rise. Your own emotions are always rising uh, and trying to get in the way. And so, actually listening to someone is a real skill and not a lot of people <laughs> can do it. And and I struggle with it myself, but, uh, but I'm getting better through my work. But um, what I've noticed is that when you actually achieve it, and as you say, you may only achieve it for a split second or a couple of seconds or a little bit longer, something, I actually perceive something in the other person sometimes very subtle, but almost like a, um, not a, I don't know if waking up is the right way to put it, but I sometimes feel like I experience like a gleam in their eye or a sort of a, especially if I do it with my, my own children, if I just really listen to them for a couple of moments, there's this sort of coming alive that happens. Uh, I see it in their eyes. I see it in their face. And then when I've done it in my, you know, I sort of do counseling and therapeutic work as well, uh, mostly with people who are, who are grieving. Um, and what I've noticed is when I'm, when I am able to do it and I'm not always able to do it, but it's, it's almost like for a moment, I've just put myself, uh, my own opinion, my own egotism sort of hung it up. I, I treat it like taking off a coat and hanging it on the hook for a minute while I'm having the conversation. It's like something new comes into the conversation that I didn't bring into the conversation that, that they don't necessarily bring in, but it's almost like a, a third element arrives, something new comes, some creative element comes into the conversation. And also it seems like something transforms a little bit, but beyond that, it also, a real bond develops between the, the, the two people, myself and the other person. And I've always had this sense that that is the beginning of community. Community can begin in in a true conversation like that, I just wonder. I just want to share that and wondered if you had any. Yeah, any thank thoughts. you very much. I think this is a really very important insight and also very important experiences. I also have to say that when I am in my clinics and I have the opportunity to enter into this process of active listening, where I suspend my own judgments that this often really opens up um, incredibly creative processes 
first of all, I believe there is a deep feeling and sense of being heard and understood. And a lot of people nowadays don't necessarily get this kind of experience, neither from their spouse, nor from their children, nor from their parents, to the extent we all really crave for it deep down because it is really an elementary desire to be heard and to be seen and to be understood in the depths of our own inner nature. Of course, it's also a scary process. But again, just like this inner accommodation with yourself can be incredibly truthful, this moment of listening to each other can become a very, very truthful and loving process as well. And I think in this moment, People feel empowered, we empower, feel empowered to speak our own truths. And that's an extraordinarily important process. And also there is, of course, a love element to it because it's not just really the suspending of judgment. It's the unconditional regard, the deep interest, you know, the for the moment you are more important to me than I am to myself. Now even if it's only for, as you've described it, for a fraction of a second. And I'm prepared now to actually give way and actually create the space so that you can express yourself within me in a way like it usually doesn't happen. And then I'm really interested in listening what comes back as a kind of after image. I think this is a very powerful process which gives very deep insight. It allows for transformation. And I would like to say a few things about this. It allows also, yes, for developing skills, which are potentially the foundation of future community building. And I agree, because it actually creates a kind of fraternality between human beings, you know, where we actually recognize each other as human beings and as brothers and sisters, so to say, and not just, you know, someone I need to take advantage of or I have to manipulate into a certain way and make them take their medication and scare them if they don't take their medication and so on and so forth, but really actually connecting on a much, much deeper level. And this is an incredibly therapeutic process when it happens, an incredibly therapeutic process. Sometimes you don't even have to give advice and that is really extraordinary because actually people will give themselves their advice when you create this kind of space. And Carl Rogers has really explored this in his form of uh, personal psychotherapy, uh, you know, in a way which is quite extraordinary. I think there are reports where he would just listen to a patient for an hour, sometimes two hours, and the patient would work away feeling really deeply and profoundly understood and knowing exactly what to do in order to change his life situation and having also the courage and the willfulness to make the changes just because he's been received in this particular and distinct way. And that's extraordinary. And yes, I agree with you, Mick. It's not easy. It's not easy. And the first step when you try to do it is that you realize how far away we sometimes are from actually achieving it. But that's a good experience too. And then if we keep at it and we do it again and again and again, then the skill grows over time, which will be available and can actually really bring quite a big difference into the world, I believe. I couldn't agree more. I think Steiner defined morality as simply, or one definition of it was simply interest in the other. And I yeah. find that a, a yeah. really 
profound. And, and you know, I think um, love can happen on two levels, can't it? I think there is a love which is mediated through our senses, and that is the love which goes through our eyes and our ears and our sense of touch and so on, which really is body-mediated. And I think in some ways, even the process of selfless listening, as we've described it right now, is after all still a kind of body-mediated process. We're using our senses and opening our senses wide and we're suspending our thinking, our judgment. And then there is another love, which is the love for the spiritual world, the love for the ideas, for the concepts, you know, which actually allow us to make ideas into ideals and give us a direction in life, a purpose. And this is a form of spiritual love. And I think they are both really very important and they kind of need to be in a little bit of a balance, don't they? So we can't just... uh develop the one completely at the cost of the other without being at risk that the whole thing you know can go wrong because if we are too perceptive too open too sensitive too intuitive too empathetic then people take advantage of us if we're constantly only thinking about what we want to achieve and how we achieve our goal and how we fight for it and how we stand up for ourselves then we may be eliminated from society to some extent or at least do more harm than good so it's really again this kind of balance which we need to develop between autonomy and love which is essential and of course there are these two elements of love the love for autonomy and you know everything that is included and the love for our fellow human beings and nature for example and i think both is really quite important absolutely that's beautifully put um so peter thank you very very much for your time today thank you for joining us and thank you for having me it's an absolute pleasure um, is there a link to a website that you want to mention now, or is it, should I just put it in the descriptions? Yeah, there is a website, but please do put it into the uh, description. Uh, it is www.mastering-life.com. Okay, and if people go there, they can find your books as well as links to the workshop? Yes, they won't find all the books, but maybe I put your list together, which you could put at the bottom so that people can find it on Amazon. But also, if they they put my name into Amazon, they will actually find all the books which I've done, but I will be very happy to provide you also with links. Wonderful. Well, Peter, thank you very much uh, once again for your time, and I look forward to further conversations in the future if you're interested to speak to us again. And I just yeah. want to wish you all the best with your work. I think, as I was saying before, it's a wonderful combination of this, what we hear from the personal development world, but bringing it together with anthroposophy, with me- meditation, but also integrating it into daily practical life uh, in a non-egotistical way. I think it's uh, it's really important work. And yeah, thank you again. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. Pleasure. Take care. Thanks.